Okay, so um, I'm just going to start by talking a little bit um, about the film. Um, those of you who were there uh, will realize that um, the film is very, very different uh, from, from the book. Um, but it's, it's great uh, spring, uh, great writing um, on the part of, of uh, Faulkner. In fact, as uh, there are really uh, many clever transformations, as Leslie pointed out, the lawyer, the uh, lips in the novel, uh, becomes the occasion for a little joke about uh, that being and uh, how that being can really sting you, really uh, be carry really powerful sting. Uh, that joke that was repeated throughout um, the, the, the movie. Uh, so it's a very clever transformation. Uh, you know, it, I would urge you to see the movie on your own, just to see what kind of a screenwriter um, Faulkner is. Um, it's actually very impressive um, to know that he um, could write something like The Sound of Fury, uh, but he could also write the screenplay for to have and have not, uh, so it's you know just kind of a almost the two sides of the spectrum um, in in terms of, of writing. Uh, so this is just the just to alert you uh, to um, this the, the the existence of the film. Um, but I also want to use this as an occasion uh, to talk about a remark that uh, Howard Hughes, uh, Howard Hawks um, made about. Uh, the book the to have and have not, and um, in many ways adding insult to injury. There he was completely changing the plot line of the novel, uh, but he had also had some uh, ungenerous things to say uh, about the novel and about Hemingway. So uh, because he was working with Hemingway, and Hemingway really was on record as being quite unhappy uh, with the way that his novel uh, was transformed. So Howard Hawks claimed to have heard from Hemingway um, that to have and have not was a bunch of junk. And apparently that was the excuse for his completely changing the novel around. Um, you know, it, it started out being really good for nothing, really good. And you know, he certainly um, should have the freedom uh, to uh, change it as he saw fit, which he did uh, to a uh, staggering degree. Uh, but Howard Hawks really began a tradition uh, of people um, saying negative things about to have and have not. Um, and uh, we can look at a few other instances uh, of people uh, expressing a lot of doubts about the novel. Um, this is um, one of the most extreme. Delmore Schwartz, to have and have not, is a stupid and foolish book, a disgrace to a good writer a book which should never have been printed. It contains passages of golden writing and the parts of three good short stories. When one of these parts appeared in Esquire as a short story, it was much better there and not broken up by the interposition of a chapter. Um, so, you know, about as, as hostile a review as one could get uh, although I should also say that book reviews are a genre in themselves and quite often book reviewers feel the need to be critical. So uh, it's uh, completely within that convention um, of book reviewing. Um, here's another, uh, to my mind, much more uh, 
much, actually much more perceptive um, and much truer to the spirit of uh, To Have and Have Not from a great critic, uh, Alfred Kaysen. A new Hemingway? Not altogether. There are passages and passages in which the old icy brilliance comes through with the slippery rhythm, the virtual assonance, the artful grace of phrases fused with such laborious cleverness that the click-clack of the beat is like a hiss. But also an unusual awkwardness, for this is a Hemingway who is rather less sure of himself than usual, but a good deal more intense. Um, so this, to my mind, captures very well uh, both what is good about the novel and what makes it worth reading in my mind. Uh, but also, obviously, it points to some uh, very clear defects about the novel. It's also a very good characterization of Hemingway in terms of the old icy brilliance um, and the, the assonance in uh, Hemingway's prose that makes it almost like poetry at many moments. Um, so it's just a very good overall account of Hemingway, uh, but also a special uh, take and very, um, I think, very true to the spirit of Hemingway in thinking that it's both less well-crafted, uh, but maybe closer to Hemingway's heart. One more uh, quote from another critic, uh, and very understandable, given the subject matter of uh, to have and have not, saying that Hemingway was one of the least overtly political writers of this generation. I think it's a very interesting statement. Um, he was one of the least overtly political does that mean that even though he's not overtly political, um, that actually uh, there's a kind of deep politics in the novel? Uh, so I would like to, not overt, but something that once we look deeper and further into the novel, we'll get to see that there's some politics there. Um, so I would like to take that as a starting point um, and to ask whether or not to have and have not is a political novel. Um, and as is the custom in this class, I'd like to think about it um, on a number of on two different scales. Um, one is through the macro history, uh, that is the background to the novel. Um, and we know that because uh, Harry Morgan has so much to do with Cubans who are trying to get to the United States in part one, and then Cubans who want to get back to Havana in part three. Uh, we know that Cuban politics is very much there. Um, and along with that, and parallel of that, there is also the Great Depression in, in the United States. So this is very much a novel of the 1930s. These are the macro politics um, that make up the context of the novel. Um, and moving to a somewhat different scale, uh, the scale of character, um, portrayal of character, narrative technique, um, I like to think about the novel as uh, different permutations of have and have not. So in that sense, it's really uh, the theme and variations on the title itself. Um, and I'll be talking about Harry um, as a have not in several ways, uh, linking that to the macro history of the novel. Uh, but then what I really would like to make a case for in the rest of the lecture is Harry as a special kind of have, what I would call a mediated 
kind of half. That is, he becomes, even though he's so obviously a half-not, he becomes a half through the presence of somebody else. So this is what I mean by mediated half, through the presence of another person, either it could be Marie, or it could be somebody like uh, Richard Gordon. Um, Harry gets to become a half. So this is an argument about Harry not being a half on his own, but becoming a half by virtue of either a channeling process by way of Marie. Um, and he's channeled through Marie both because of the way she thinks about him and also because of the way he looks at her. And he contrasted with Richard Gordon both because of the way Richard looks at Marie and because of the way Richard Gordon talks to his own wife, Helen. So um, it's a very much a permutation, a kind of a, a dance, really, among characters um, in order uh, for Harry to emerge as a half at the very end. So but first of all, let's um, go back to the macro history of uh, Cuba in the 1930s. Um, and as you can see, um, there, it, the politics of Cuba was incredibly complicated in the 30s. Um, there were six presidents in three years. Um, so I'm not even, you're under no obligation to remember the names of the presidents. Um, I won't even pronounce names, but I just want to give you a sense of how long they were presidents. Um, so most of the presidents were presidents for just a few months, um, in this case, um, less than a month. Um, less than just a few months, um, in the case of Ramon Grau, um, just for three days, um, in the case of Charles <laughs> Um And this is this beats everything. He was president for just one day, Manuel Marquez Sterling. Um, and then, okay, slightly longer, uh, a few months as a record, and uh, a few months. So, um, I think that it's just really clear, you know, just from looking at the list of presidents of Cuba um, in the between 1933 and 1936, um, that the politics was just incredibly hard to figure out. Um, and as I mentioned last time, Hemingway was actually not in Cuba when he was writing to have and have not, he was in the Bahamas. Uh, so it's highly improbable that he would have been able to figure out the politics of Cuba in, in any intimate way. Um, he would have been looking at it very much um, from the outside. He probably understood the politics of the Spanish Civil War uh, that he was covering much, much better than the actual politics in Cuba that was his setting. Um, so instead of giving us, uh, so the, as a consequence, the presidents of Cuba were never mentioned. We don't even know who was president um, then. Um, instead, what Hemingway gives us is a generic type. Um, this is the young boy, Emilio, um, who is one of the passengers that have to be carried back to Havana after the bank robbery. Um, so this is um, the very dangerous trip uh, for Harry. Um, but he gets to talk to the boy quite a bit and likes him and also kills him. Uh, but this is a generic type of the revolutionary mocked by his speech pattern. We are the only true revolutionary party, the boy said. We want to do away with all the old politicians. 
with all of American imperialism that strangles us, with the tyranny of the army. We want to start clean and give every man a chance. We want to end the slavery of the Guajiros, you know, the peasants. We just raise money now for the fight, the boys have. To do that, we have to use means that later we would never use. Also, we have to use people we will not employ later. But the end is worth the means. Emilio is a young boy, uh, but he talks like a much older person. There's actually a lot of authority, um, and I don't think that Hemingway is just giving this to us as a caricature. There's a certain kind of authority that comes from a certain vocabulary, a certain speech pattern. The boy almost didn't have to think in order to say all those things because he's so familiar with that kind of phrasing, that kind of idiom. Um, he's completely conditioned in that idiom um, so that it really is second nature to him. And we can think a little bit about what it means to have that kind of second nature. I think that most of us tend to think that it is not good to have that kind of language drilled into us. So there's almost a kind of reflex action for it to come out just like that. Um, I think we tend to be very suspicious of people who talk in this kind of um, very dogmatic and kind of generic kind of language. Um, you know, that well, you can you can hear two sentences and you know that this man is a radical um, and he's wearing his radicalism on his sleeve. Um, so this is a, a man who, um, in, in many ways, he, he, we don't even know if his true name is Emilio. Um, he just says to Harry, you can call me Emilio. Um, going back to the famous line in movie they call me Ishmael, many, many characters in American literature would say to another character, call me something. This is a very, very minor local instance of this, um, but we don't know his true name. Uh, he's just known by the name Emilio. Um, and that in itself is emblematic of the kind of character that he is. Um, but I want to go back to the point about what it means to have a second nature, a second linguistic nature. Um, and even though our instinct, our gut reaction, is to be very suspicious of someone like that. I actually want to make the point that having a second nature like that is probably not the worst thing a human being can have. You know, it is probably not the best thing a human being can have. But it probably is not the worst thing. Um, because it is a sort of religious faith. Um, that is cast in secular language. And to the extent that we think that human beings need some kind of faith, it actually is very, very good to have that second nature. So I, you know, I think that Hemingway is partly caricaturing that style talking, <coughs> but he's showing us what it means to have your being within that kind of language. Um, it's a problematic kind of being, most of us would reject it, but it is kind of a viable kind of being. And in contrast, we can look at Harry, and this is the first instance when I would like to make a case for Harry as a have-not, is that he just doesn't have that kind of political conviction. He doesn't have the second nature that is second nature to Emilio 
And as a consequence, that's how we talk. I want to drink, Harry was thinking. What the hell do I care about his revolution? F with his revolution. To have the working man, he robs the bank and kills a fellow who works with him and then kills that poor damn Albert that never did any harm. That's a working man he kills. He never thinks of that. With a family. It's the Cubans run Cuba. They all double-cross each other. They sell each other out. They get what they deserve. The hell with the revolutions. All I got to do is make a living for my family, and I can't do that. Then he tells me about his revolution, the hell with his revolution. Um, it's a reaction that probably most of us would have. Uh, you know, the Cuban, especially in the 30s, uh, that sort of revolution would feel that way to most people who are outside of it. But the point remains that feeling that way about the revolution gives Harry no alternative moral grounding. This speech is almost completely empty of any kind of moral foundation, any kind of political conviction. Um, all he can say is, I want to drink at this moment. Um, and um, that, you know, I want to make a living for my family, and I can't do that. So it is almost a kind of a total omission of defeat without having the dubious saving grace of some sort of political conviction that can point to some sort of exit from this horrible condition that you are in. Um, I'm not saying that, that Amelia represents a superior alternative to Harry, quite the contrary. He's deluded, um, I think that you know, Hemingway is not leaving a lot of doubt about that. Uh, Amelia is deluded, but at certain points in one's life, a certain degree of willful delusion is actually a very necessary fiction that um, lots of human beings need. Uh, and um, it is probably better for Amelia to die, still clinging to that political conviction. Um, and this is what happens to Harry when he cannot cling, when there's really nothing for him to cling to, uh, when he's relying completely on his own mental resources, and there's not a whole lot for him to cling to. He's a pretty empty person left to his own devices. Um, so this is, the, I would argue that this is the first instance of Harry as a have-not, only in the sense that he doesn't have that dubious but redeeming kind of second nature. Um, I, we also know that the Cuban revolutions, such as they were, um, were not the only reference point for the novel. Um, to have and have not is very much about Key West and Key West during the Great Depression. Uh, so this is Hemingway's house, a beautiful house in Key West that he spent a lot of time in later, um, actually much, much later, not at this point. Um, but this would have been what uh, people in Key West would have seen uh, during the Great Depression, the red lines. Um, and this is one that is actually uh, from the Florida Historical Archives, um, most likely Key West, um, because Key West, which is a very prosperous city before the Great Depression, was especially hard hit by the Depression. So the unemployment rate was 80%, 80%. 
um, of the citizens were actually on relief, and Mr. Albert is someone uh, who was on relief. So um, this is about the most acute case study of the Great Depression that we get in American literature, except that Hemingway is not really talking about the Great Depression in a frontal way. Um, and we can look at the way in which even the word Great Depression, or without even the great, um, is uh, suggested to us that that is an allusion <coughs> to that historical context. Um, so this is how the Great Depression is registered by Harry. On the booth boat, Harry had the last sack over. Give me the fish knife, he said to the nigger. It's gone. Harry pressed the self-starters and started the two engines. He put a second engine in her. He went back to running liquor when the depression had put charter boat fishing on the boat. So there are three, there are at least two ways in which Harry, as a smuggler of liquor, two ways in which that is contextualized. First, we don't know about this. We, we don't, can only conjecture in part one. In part two, um, Harry is both revealed to us as a smuggler, but uh, we just think that maybe that's just something that he chooses to do. But then it comes out in the context of the Great Depression that he goes back to it because the Great Depression has made the much more profitable charter house, charter boat fishing um, impossible in part one. He was still doing the charter boat fishing when he was uh, cheated out of $825 by Mr. Johnson. That was still the charter boat fishing. Uh, that is no longer operative. And the only way he could make a living is by smuggling liquor into the United States. So right now, that is the way, that this very oblique, um, very elusive way is the way Hemingway indexes uh, the Great Depression. And I think it's really useful to think of um, the technique that Hemingway is using as a kind of indexing. It's not a frontal, uh, full dress description of the Great Depression. It's just um, a kind of very, a cameo appearance that puts the Depression in the index, so to speak, of the novel. Uh, but it's, it, it doesn't engage it or put it in the foreground. Um, and we can I hope that you guys will talk about it in section why he chooses to talk about the depression in that way in this very oblique fashion. Uh, but in this passage, uh, we can also see that Harry is a have-not um, for these three reasons. One is that he's lost his original occupation, although there's also the reference that he's going back to running So, you know, he must have been doing that at some earlier point. We don't know why he was doing it. All we know is that he had been law-abiding for quite a while as an owner of a charter boat. Um, and now he's doing something that is illegal because of the Great Depression. So he loses his legal occupation. Um, right now, we know also know that he's losing, actually, all his liquor he's, because he's uh, at the customs. Uh, uh, on him, so he has to get rid of all his liquor um, that costs a lot of money. Uh, but not only that, even that small detail about the fish knife, even that is gone. So 
in many ways, to have and have not is a very detailed, from the macro to the micro, catalog of all the things that are being taken away from Harry. Um, it really is sort of adding insult to injury. You lose in a big way, you also lose in a very small way. Um, that's really um, the landscape uh, of loss that Hemingway has created for Harry Morgan. And um, just one other um, portrait of him as a have not, and this is Harry thinking about, he knows that those Cubans um, that want the, the, the Cubans who want to be taken back to uh, Havana, he knows that they're going to rob a bank because every time he walks by a bank, he doesn't want to look at the bank. So he actually knows that that's what's going to happen. You know? uh, so gullible as not to know the purpose uh, of that trip. Um, but he's not in a position to make any other choices at that point. So I would say this is the ultimate measure of Harry as a have not, is knowing that he should not be doing this but having no other choice open to him. I could stay here now and I'll be out of it, but what the hell would they eat on? Where's the money coming from to keep Marie and the girls? I've got no boat, no cash, I've got no education. What can a one-armed man look at? All I've got is my cojones to peddle. Um, so this is the, the kind of the ultimate um, blow against someone who would like to operate as an individual, is to be able at least to make a decision based on your own judgment. Everything in Harry's judgment tells him that this is not something to do. His judgment is not at fault. His hands are tied. He has to do, go against his judgment and do something that every thing in him would recoil against and warn him against. Um, so this is the ultimate um, emptying out of every decisional process has been taken away from Harry. He loses material objects like boat. The boat was uh, confiscated by, by customs after it was found to be uh, illegal. It was smuggling liquor that was confiscated, so taken away from him. Um, and now we know that he has no money and obviously no education and missing, missing one arm. Um, so it's at this moment, uh, this is the absolute low point, I would say, uh, for Harry. And now I want to go to a slightly um, different uh, trajectory. Uh, what I would like to suggest is actually the beginning of an upward trajectory. And the beginning of this upward trajectory is going to be very, very stark. Um, it is Harry as an ironic half. Um, this is the moment when we know that Harry is dying. He's been wounded. Uh, we know that all the Cubans were killed by Harry. Um, and Harry was also fatally wounded uh, by Rubeau, the Cuban. Um, so all of them uh, were dying on the boat, but Harry was the last to die. Um, and he, this is the moment before his death, and what he has at that moment. He was on his back now, with his knees drawn up, and his head back. The water of the lake that was his belly was very cold. So cold 
that when he stepped into his edge, it numbed him. And he was extremely cold now, and everything tasted of gasoline, as though he had been sucking on a hose to siphon a tank. He knew there was no tank, although he could feel a cold rubber hose that seemed to have entered his mouth and now was coiled, big, cold, and heavy, all down through him. Each time he took a breath, the hose caught colder and firmer in his lower abdomen, and he could feel it like a big, smooth, moving snake in there, about the sloshing of the way. This is in chapter 20, chapter 20, and I urge you to read that chapter at least a couple of times. It is great, great writing uh, when the critics um, admitted to having um, really impressive prose in To Have and Have Not, they must have been thinking of chapter 20. It's just a great chapter, um, and it's about a boat with dead men and the fish coming to uh, fish on the drippings uh, from the wounds on the dead man. Uh, but it's, it's a great description of human mortality uh, against a sea of very vibrant and obviously living sea creatures. Um, but the passage right here is a description, um, and I think that it maybe is a challenge from Hemingway, although I wouldn't want to push this uh, too much. Um, is a challenge to us to think about what it means to die and what exactly do we have at the moment of death. Um, Harry actually does have something, although it's not anything that anyone would want to have. He has this rubber hose that is inside him. That's making him colder and colder. Um, it is not a possession that we would volunteer or it's a possession that most of us would like to have taken out of it. But it's a possession, nonetheless. So I would like to at least put forth the possible uh, argument uh, that because of the kind of life that Harry has lived, um, even though there's so many strikes against him, even though all the odds against him. The moment of death actually is his own moment in the sense that he's living his physicality to its fullest. This is not um, dying without knowing that you are dying, although he does lose consciousness after that. It is experiencing death to its fullest extent. Um, and uh, And just having that uh, register on every fiber of your being. Um, it, I don't know how much we want to push on this point, um, but I like to see this as the beginning of the kind of upward swing of the narrative, um, that this is the moment when we can begin to stop thinking of Harry as a have-not, and to stop thinking of him as a have, although a have in a very ironic sense, um, having a possession that uh, most of us would much rather not have. But from this point, I would like, make, like to make um, a much more systematic argument um, about Harry as a have, and I do think that this is something that 
Hemingway is doing in a very deliberate fashion. So I would very much want to argue that this is actually the basic structure of to have and have not, um, is to show Harry as a have through the mediated presence of other people. So we'll be looking at him um, through Marie and looking at him through Richard Coverland. So what Marie thinks about Harry. Unlucky, she was thinking. Those girls, they don't know what they'll get. I know what I've got and what I've had. I've been a lucky woman. I've been a lucky woman. There ain't no other man like that. People ain't never tried them, don't know. I've had plenty of them. I've been lucky to have him. Um, it's suggested to us that um, Marie was a sporting woman. Um, her profession. Um, so she's had lots of men in her professional capacity. Um, and uh, it is from that wealth of knowledge of men that she can say that Harry is really, is at that point, is the best. Um, that she's tried them all, and there's just no one like Harry. So it's a dubious kind of compliment. You know, you don't want have a prostitute kind of saying that, uh, testifying to the fact that you are the best um, when that happens to be your wife. Um, so once again, Hemingway is really taking away with one hand what he's giving with another. But there is no question that Harry has made Marie's life, the life that she's enjoying at that moment, that she's having a good life. She's having a good life only because of him. He is the thing that gives her a good life. Um, and that is the measure of what Harry has. So it's a very much more complicated, mediated kind. He has something because of the good life that Marie has because of him. And without Marie, we wouldn't have been able to say that. Um, so this is the first upward swing of that trajectory towards Harry as a possible have. And I would like to add that it is not just because of the way that he's treated Marie and the way that Marie has, is now having a good life because of him, but also because of the way he looks at Marie. So there is action coming from him as well. We can sort of understand why Marie is having a good life now um, and why he has made all the difference to her life. So here, Marie, Harry is going on this dangerous trip with the Cubans when he knows that it's the bank robbery that is uh, at stake. And Marie wants to go with him just to take care of the jugs and you know, take care because he has only one arm at this point. She wants to do something for him on the boat and she wants to come along. So he says, all right, he told her. And she got in beside him, a big woman, long-legged, big-handed, big hip, still handsome, a hat pulled on over her bleach blonde hair. Are you worried about Harry? I don't know. I'm just worried. Listen, are you letting your hair grow up? I thought I would. The girls have been after me. The hell with them. You keep it like it is. Do you really want me to? Yes, he said. That's the way I like it. You don't think I look too old? You look better than any of them. So that's why. That's why Marie has a good life is because of the way Harry treats her. And we see exactly how he treats her. Um, 
that he likes her the way she is, and um, you know, and he tells her that he's worried, but he doesn't want to tell her the full extent of it, of his worry. So he changes the subject when she wants to find out more. Um, all of this make Marie's life a good life, and it is all encapsulated in this one small passage. And the contrast of that comes out in that previous passage. We know that Marie is probably a big woman. Um, she has long-legged, big hands, big hips, and so on. Um, we don't know exactly how big she is until <laughs> we get to see her through the eyes of Richard Gordon. And then it's kind of a shock uh, to see this passage. Uh, coming through the, the eyes of a neutral or uh, hostile observer, although not really hostile, he's really neutral, um, but a very unkind neutral observer. Riding his bicycle, he passed a heavy set, big, blue eyed woman with bleached blonde hair showing under her old man's felt hat. Hurrying across the road, her eyes red from crying. Looking at that, look at that big ox, he thought. What do you suppose a woman like that thinks about? What do you suppose she goes, she does in bed? What does her husband feel about her when she gets that size? In today's chapter, he was going to use the big woman with the tear-reddened eyes he had just seen on the way home. Her husband, when he came home at night, hated her, hated the way she had coarsened and grown heavy, was repelled by her bleached hair, her two big breasts. He has seen, in the flesh of perception, the whole inner life of that type of woman. So Hemingway is both dramatizing the process of labeling people, the making of social types, and showing considerable uh, doubt whether that is a good practice, to say the least. Um, it is really interesting that Richard Gordon um, is a writer, so you know I think that Hemingway is probably thinking about himself as well, and whether uh, it's an entirely ethical practice even uh, to populate his novel with social types. I mean, right now he's actually creating another social type, a writer who doesn't care about his subjects and only wants to use them um, to write uh, novels to his own satisfaction. Um, so um, this is, uh, he's both talking about Richard Gordon and maybe expressing a little bit of worry about himself as well. But in any case, if we move away from Hemingway's own investment and his psychology, um, possible psychology in creating someone like Richard Gordon, we can say that this is a direct affirmation of what a kind man Harry Morgan is, and it's not just kindness that enables him to look past the bigness of Marie. It's, it's probably not just kindness, so it's you know, understating the case. It's something else uh, that truly doesn't bother him that she's so big. Uh, when it probably would, most people would have noticed that about her. Uh, so it says something about uh, that relationship, whatever we call it. It is one that turns a big woman into a beautiful woman. Um, and to the extent that Harry is able to do that, he is kind of a magician of sorts. He has 
a kind of emotional magic that changes Marie into something else. Um, and in the process of that transformation, he also acquires an identity. He is the person who's able to do this to Marie and do this for Marie. This is the ultimate measure of someone who has magic in his hands. And it is the lack of magic that makes Richard Gordon the washed up writer that he is. Uh, Richard Gordon is, is, was probably once a very, very good writer. He is admired, as we see. He was thrilled to meet him. Um, but at the point we're meeting him, um, he's writing, the craft of writing seems to be on the wane. Um, and we begin to see this, uh, what a bad writer he is in this supposedly neutral uh, portrait of Marie is that all he notices is the size of this woman. He doesn't notice the most important fact about Marie is that her eyes are red from crying. He's solely the curiosity, solely the imagination, that he misses the central fact. This is when Marie knows that Harriet is dead, and that was why her eyes are tear reddened. Richard Gordon is such a poor writer that he cannot see the most obvious thing about Marie in his uh, uh, eagerness to turn her into a social type. And in this exchange with his own wife, we see um, that the fact that he's a bad writer um, also, almost seems to spill out and has a kind of analogy uh, in his relation with his wife, Helen, who's leaving him. Uh, and this is, um, this is actually one of the great moments. I'm not quoting you the full extent of, um, of Helen's speech, but go and look at page um, 185, and this long, long speech about love, and um, the, it's dripping with irony about uh, what she feels about love with coming from Richard Gordon. Um, but that is the end of that conversation. All right, I'm through with you, and I'm through with love. Your kind of pigmen's love, you writer. You little mixed slut. Don't call me names. I know the word for you. All right. No, not all right. All wrong and wrong again. If you were just a good writer, I could stand for all the rest of it, maybe. But I've seen you bitter, jealous, changing your politics to suit the fashion, sucking up to people's faces and talking about them behind the backs. I've seen you until I'm sick of you. Um, so what kind of a person Richard Gordon is can only be registered in the full by someone who's by his side all the time. That is the most accurate picture of Richard Gordon, and that's the kind of person he is. So it is a portrait that completely creams out everything, that removes everything. Um, his claim to fame, his claim to craftsmanship, his claim to writerly genius, his claim to being a great romantic lover, um, all those things have been emptied out by Helen in this moment. If we think about the symmetry between uh, Harry channeled through Marie and Richard Gordon channeled through uh, Helen, it is very hard not to come to the conclusion that we need to have an alternative definition of what it means to, to be a half and what it means to be a half-not. Um, it's not so easy to add a label you know, to what the criterion might be for, count, for someone to count as a half. 
Um, the criteria are probably much too complicated to be captured just by one word, and that's really the point. Uh, the simplest way to put it is that in order to be a half, you have to make somebody else a half. Marie has a good life because of Harry, and Harry has something because Marie has a good life. This is the symmetrical construction of halves in Hemingway's novel. Um, so I would say that actually this is um, Hemingway's quite often uh, criticized for being um, a very poor uh, writer when it comes to women, and that is true in most of his novels. There's no, there's no imagination uh, for what it might feel to be a woman, uh, but this is actually an exception. Uh, this is an exceptionally powerful um, depiction of the human condition from the woman's point of view. And so um, I would, in conclusion, I'd like to bring up one celebrated uh, passage uh, from modernist writing uh, told from the standpoint of a woman's point of view. Now, just a little anecdote that um, Hemingway actually had great admiration for James Joyce. He saw James Joyce in Paris. Uh, he saw <coughs> Joyce even with his family. They were all speaking Italian in Paris. <laughs> Hemingway was very, very impressed. Um, but so it is not unfitting uh, to compare him uh, with Joyce in this most famous passage in Joyce Molly's soliloquy at the very end of Ulysses. And I thought, well, as well him as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me, would I, yes, to say, yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breast all perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. So this is Molly Bloom thinking about it. It was a long time ago. You know, the marriage has really gone sour in many ways. Um, affairs and so on. Um, but thinking back to that moment when she agrees to marry Leopold Bloom, and Charles um, obviously wants to end Ulysses on that note, that very early romance between the two of them. A woman's love for a man and a man's love for a woman. This is um, not quite the, um, not quite that. It's the opposite of that. But I would argue it's just as powerful, even though it's not as well known as Molly's soliloquy. Um, it was Marie. How do you get through nights if you can't sleep? I guess you find out like you find out how it feels to lose your husband. I guess you find out all right. I guess you find out everything in this goddamn life. I guess you do all right. I guess I'm probably finding out right now. You just go dead inside and everything is easy. You just get dead like most people are most of the time. I guess that's how it's all right. I guess that's just about what happens to you. Well, I've got a good start. I've got a good start if that's what you have to do. I guess that's what you have to do all right. I guess that's it. I guess that's what it comes to. All right. I've got a good start then. I'm way ahead of everybody now. Um, Hemingway almost sounds like Gertrude Stein, another of his favorite uh, people, and then it also sounds a little bit, but anyway, he had tremendous admiration for Gertrude Stein. He really does sound like Gertrude Stein. Um, this is a kind of senseless repetition. This is not eloquent at all. It is compulsive repetition on the And that is the compulsive repetition that comes to someone 
when she's had a good life and, and that good life has only been taken away from her. Um, and so both in the fact that um, she's had a good life and in the fact that she's going hysterical when that is Social type. 